Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Jim Sims, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning program celebrating over 12 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, the issues, and the events impacting African Americans. Hey, Jim. Good to have you How you, you doing, here. Liz? Good evening, everybody. I'm Liz Mitchell, and in today's broadcast, you'll also hear our perspective on what's relevant in the African American world of news and local events of interest, all in the next hour on Bring It On. But first... And you notice we always say, but first, before we bring on the we big do, guns. Yes. I don't say that. I know. The mission of the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus is to strive to improve educational efforts to close the achievement gap that threatens to shut the doors to opportunity for minority students at all grade levels, to enhance public policies that will address the primary concerns of minority citizens in Indiana, including the need to reduce crime, gun violence, and domestic violence within our communities and to target assistance to address the needs of families struggling to obtain basic necessities such as housing, utilities, clothing, and food. Joining us by phone tonight to discuss the agenda of Indiana Black Legislative Caucus is Representative Cherish Pryor, who has served as a legislator in the Indiana House of Representatives since November 4, 2008. She is currently chairwoman of the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus. Representative Pryor, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. How are you this evening? I'm good. Hopefully you all as well also. Um, yeah, we didn't get a lot of snow down here in southern Indiana, so we're we're, we're good. good to go. No snow. <laughs> well, I can see the I can still see the pavement here in Indianapolis as well. So. All right. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully it, it, it has subsided quite uh, a bit. Um, I believe on February the twenty eighth, I think the date was, we had um, um, legislative day at the state house for the NAACP, and I believe I met you then. Um, at least your voice We're sounds very. Very likely. I, I do believe that we did, um, but just want to say welcome. and glad to hear your voice again. And before we get into the conversation, can you um, um, let our listeners know a little bit about yourself, and uh, including what area that your district entails? Okay, sure. Um, I represent the northwest side of Indianapolis. Um, I've served, as you all stated, since uh, 2008. Um, I serve on the Ways and Means Committee, which is the fiscal um, committee for the Indiana House of Representatives. I also serve on roads and transportation, which has been a hot topic um, this year, as well as local government, uh, where I am a am the ranking minority member, and also uh, utilities and energy, telecommunications. So I serve on four committees uh, at the legislature. Uh, prior to that, I did serve on the city county council here in Indianapolis uh, for about two years. So um, I've done a lot of public service uh, stuff. I worked for the House of Representatives in um, 1995 uh, to 1998 as well. So I've kind of gone a full circle um, in the legislative process. 
I'd say you have the experience to pretty much serve and do what it is that you're doing. Uh, yes, I, I, I would like to think so. <laughs> I, you know, I, let me say this. I spent quite a bit of time uh, also in Bloomington. I graduated from IU uh, in Bloomington as well. So um, I do have a, a big heart for for the, for Bloomington, Indiana, because I spent quite a, quite a bit of time down there. Okay. Okay. Um, we have, uh, I'm just looking at some uh, session updates here. And I had a question for you about education funding, mm-hmm. the virtual charter schools. What do you think about that? Well, you know, um, I think when virtual charters uh, first was, were introduced, um, the legislature was told that and not as much money was going to be needed for virtual charters because there were no brick-and-mortar buildings. It was a virtual education. Okay. Um, but when it they initially got started, since then, virtual charters have stated that they need 100% of what the actual brick-and-mortar schools uh, need because they, they are not making enough money. Um, and so what, what it turned out to be um, virtual charters really turned into in be a, another way of taking money away from traditional um, sources um, of public funding for education. Um, I have not been an advocate uh, of charter schools. I think, um, you know, we we have uh, really with the education and how we fund education, we have four silos uh, of education. We have public edu- traditional public education. We have um, charters and in, in that would, would be virtual charters as well. And then we also have this other system of vouchers, uh, which that we call that school choice. Um, and within all of those, what we're seeing is, um, is money is being taken away uh, from traditional uh, schools being diverted to those other silos of education. Uh, but unfortunately, it's harming the kids who are in the traditional school system, particularly those kids in the, in the urban areas. Um, and what you'll see is the charter schools are really saturated in the urban communities. You're not going to see charter schools in rural communities. Um, my position is that we really need to truly fund education at the level that we need to fund it at, and we to be really serious about educating our kids, whether it's vouchers, whether it's um, charter schools, or certainly traditional schools. Um, charter schools have the option of, of not allowing the kids to Okay, so just so our listening audience will know, these virtual charter schools, they are definitely for-profit. Uh, some of them are, yes. And so what happens is a company can, um, an organization or a group of teachers, whoever can set up, can request a charter. And they get a charter and they hire a company to run the school. That school um, gets paid out of the money that we uh, give to the school. And if the charter authorizer isn't making enough money, 
you know, they can go back and say, we're not making enough money, which is what they've been saying. We don't make enough money. We need to make more money in order, the only way for them to get more money is for the legislature to increase funding uh, for them. And that well, money does not necessarily not go all, to the teachers. This, not all charter schools are uh, ran by for-profit organizations. Mm-hmm. Some of them are, but some of them are not. Okay. Okay, and if I may add, years ago, um, basically when charter schools were not so much first introduced, but when we first became aware of them here in Bloomington, um, they tried to start a charter school. And it was promoted as being all-inclusive um, and more representative of, of being a better educating device for um, children of color. Um, but what we've since found out is that it basically, it's, it, it's sort of a discriminatory selection um, I don't think many people understand that once you involved in a charter school, then you no longer have public transportation. Um, there are some extracurricular issues, um, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So I think those are some of the unwritten things that many people don't consider um, other than the sheer cost and the money that's been taken away from the public sector. Yeah, and charters really, they can, they can more easily choose the students who they take in. Traditional schools, they have to accept the kid that shows up at their doorstep. They don't have the option, you know, of going through a lottery. Uh, the charter school, if the kid doesn't do well in what we find uh, in some of our charter schools here um, in Indianapolis, is if the kid isn't doing good at the charter school, um, the school may counsel the kid out of the school, uh, which is uh, another problem. But uh, beyond that, when you look at the schools that are performing, some of the schools that are performing the worst, some of those schools are charter schools. Um, and so the promise that was made by the charter schools from the inception, you know, we can do it, we can do the same job, job we can do it cheaper, and we can do it better, has not panned out uh, by any stretch of the imagination. You know, because the charter, some of the charters, as I stated, are not doing as well as some of our traditional public schools. And indeed, many of them uh, perform at the bottom. Um, and so they really can't say that they're doing a better job because um, that's just not the case. Okay. And I think the umbrella over all of this is going to be the um, uh, budget this year, the biennial, biennial budget. Um, uh-huh. And everything else that we'll talk about definitely falls under that. So what are some of the challenges that, other than, you know, I'm sure funding sources are the main issues, but some of the, what are some of the challenges that you all are looking at um, and, and going to have to deal with? Well, when it comes to funding and education, what, what we're seeing is uh, about 201 schools will lose or receive less money than um, what they uh, were in 2000, or t- 2018 and 2017. Um, and then 156 schools will lose less money uh, begin for the, the 2019 academic year. So we have some schools that are losing money. My choice would have been that we made sure that every school received more money or at least what they had received the prior year. Um, mm-hmm. 
what kind of how we uh, budget for school is, you know, we give money based on the per pupil, uh, but just because the school loses one student doesn't mean that we need to cut the school funding for that kid because you can't get rid of one teacher because you lose one student. So we are not really adequately funding um, our school system. And that's not just something that the urban, the funding of schools isn't just an urban issue. It's also a rural issue as well. So that's what we're kind of seeing uh, with education. Certainly with higher education, uh, that's also important to us. For you all being in Bloomington as well, uh, but the higher education community did receive a $1.7 million or 1.7% increase in their funding for the next two years. So higher education um, is really is getting funded. Um, and I know that there are going to, some students have projects that they want to um, want to complete, and those will be funded in the budget as well. We, um, our budget is a two-year budget. That's about a $31 billion budget. Uh, and about 54% of that money will go toward K-12 education. So uh, we, the state of Indiana, even though the way we cut the pot money for education isn't how I would cut the, the pie if I were in control, uh, we've shown a dedication to education with 54% of our budget going towards that, that one line item. And we've been blessed in our community to have passed a uh, referendum for our school system um, and raised uh, about $7.5 million, I think, um, to help offset the deficit from the state. Um, is this something that legislatures are encouraging, um, referendums I'm, I'm referring to, or what are you all stance on, on referendums? You know, we give the, the, the locals the option to do it. I can't say it as a body. Um, we encourage or discourage it. It's really, you know, up to the locals. You know, you all are lucky that you all got your pass. We've had some school communities, even though um, they really need the funding for um, buildings or school buses and transportation, some school systems. Their communities have voted their referendum down, and those schools are, are struggling uh, trying to make uh, ends meet. You know, we have, uh, say, for instance, the school system in Gary, Indiana. Um, right. They're petitioning the state uh, uh, because they are so much in debt. They're tens of millions of dollars in debt. Um, and, you know, um, so referendums are good when you can get them passed, uh, but, you know, it's, you, you really have to sell those um, to the people. And, and depending on where you live, um, you may not get those passed because they get turned down just as many as it seems like get turned down by the public as they do get passed. But we don't take a formal position. We just allow the local <clears throat> opportunity to... Uh, to have another way to fund, to fund their school. Okay. Representative Pryor, this is William Hosea. How are you? All right. How are you? Great. You know, I was supposed to be off today, but once we got you on the schedule, I did a U-turn. Oh, I, feel, <laughs> I, I feel touched. <laughs> <laughs> hey, talking about uh, 
education funding still? You mentioned 201 schools, 156 uh, over a two-year period are going to lose or receive less than a 1% funding increase. So that, if I read that correctly, that basically amounts to no increase in funding over that two-year period for those 356 schools. So, And then the 10% increase from 90 to 100% for charter schools. So I'm wondering if this is a result of the policies coming from the new education secretary or, or were these things that have been in the pipeline for a while now? These are things that, quite honestly, have been in the pipeline for a while. The, the, the new um, Secretary of Education, I think she's still um, kind of feeling her oats a little bit <laughs> um, and learning the process. Um, but this, this, this is something that has been happening uh, for years, and uh, it's probably because of the makeup of the legislature. Uh, I can't foresee this uh, from not happening in the future. So I can't I can't say that that's her uh, because she's so new to the game right now. So which one of the uh, the bills that are in the legislative session right now do you think will have the most impact on the African-American community in your district and statewide? Oh my goodness. There's, you know, there's a lot of bills that it's going to have uh, an impact uh, in, in my community. Uh, we have, um, for Indianapolis in particular, we have a, a bill dealing with how we, we get out of judges here in Marion County. Right now, we have the opportunity to elect our judges uh, through a process. But the way that we elected our judges, is, which is different than Monroe County, was being unconstitutional by a federal court. So we have to come back and um, figure out a new way for getting our judges. The new way uh, that is being proposed in the bill is that we will have a committee that would determine who our judges are. The problem with that is it's taking away the right of my constituents and everybody in Marion County to vote on who will represent us on the bench. Ironically, there are four other counties in the state of Indiana that also have their judges uh, appointed by a committee. Those counties are Lake County, Allen County, Bednerburg, and St. Joseph. Those counties all have significant African-American populations. Although the top five counties in the state of Indiana with the largest population includes Hamilton County. Hamilton County doesn't have a significant or large percentage of African American judges. They elect their judges. And so we have a major issue in that the, the folks that look like me around the state being told who our judges are versus having a direct vote. And um, that obviously um, takes away our right to vote and seems to me to be a voting rights issue and a voter suppression issue. So that is a big issue for my district and and my community. And are steps being taken to rectify that? We are fighting the bill. Uh Uh-huh. and, but we're in a super minority. 
and so uh, we're going to try to wait and we can really only wait and see what happens and try to figure out what we're going to do um, after the bill passes and how we can work with um, with you know whomever to, to maybe take it to court and uh, try to get a resolution um, a fair resolution um, from the from the court system because we're not going to get it at the legislature. It's just it's, it's very blatant. Yes. Um, it's, it's very, very, very blank. The five, the five counties uh, that don't vote for their judges have a large percentage of African Americans. And Hamilton County be like the third or fourth largest county in this in the state. They get to let their judges. Mm-hmm. Something is wrong with that picture. Yes. I know that's absolutely right. Wrong. Something is absolutely wrong with that picture. And what can individuals or the constituents do to rectify this situation? What do you advise people to do? I know education and then should, who can they write? Who can they call? What what can they do? They can write and call their legislator and tell their legislator that they realize that this is not Marion, that they don't live in Marion County, but they should vote against that bill because mm-hmm. every county in the state of Indiana, if we're going to have a, a system in which judges are appointed, every county, all 92 counties should appoint their judges. If we're going to have elections, all 92 counties should have an election. It should not be a difference because mm-hmm. the, the large, the large percentage of people that live in the county are African-American. Okay. Okay, and we have the pleasure this evening, um, for the benefit of our listeners, of graciously discussing with Representative Cherish Pryor, who is who hails from District 94, and we're discussing the agenda of the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus, um, which is also part of the, the legislative session up in Indy. And Representative Pryor, um, there are so many issues. Um, we're, we're talking infrastructure. Um, we're talking precinct consolidation. Um, there, how, how do you keep it all straight? Um, prayer in schools is is another one, which which just befuddles me because I thought that was already uh, allowed. Um, yes, it is. It's uh, a moment of silence is allowed. Oh, okay. Different than prayer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, that that's the big difference. Okay, and I'm reading here other provisions include, and what's sticking out for me, uh, continued funding for a sickle cell program? Yes. Now, uh, the word continued, were they talking about not funding that anymore? Is that well, what that... Well, th- so this is the thing. As we build, uh, we build, we build our budget and get the budget presented to us, one thing that we try to do as a black office is make sure the programs that are important to the African-American community uh, continue to be funded. And so uh, because those things are important to us, we always make sure that they are on a, on our agenda when we put together material. Uh, so and there has been times in which funding for some of our programs have been um, cut. And so what we've done in the way the new committee is offered up amendments to make sure that we get that funding level back to what it was previously. So we have to keep an eye on programs that are important to our community and make sure that those programs continue to, to be 
self-funded. Um, not only should the building, uh, but also the Minority Health Coalition, making sure we continue uh, that funding as well, because those are, are things that are vitally important to our community. Mm-hmm. Do you have another question, William? Yeah. Representative Pryor, I wanted to ask about the uh, use of criminal history information in hiring. Mm-hmm. Is this uh, an attempt to kind of beat back the ban the box initiatives? Absolutely. That is exactly what this bill is. Uh, so this legislator wants to ban the ban the box. So if you all have um, had an ordinance at the local level, um, then this is saying you, you can't do that. Uh, in your local community, which is really unfortunate uh, because I think locals best know what works for their community and what doesn't. And so this is taking away power from, power from the locals. I know that we have a band, uh, band the box here in Indianapolis, uh, which, uh, with the, which council was hard to pass. Um, so this is going to undercut that effort in any other effort that in the state of Indiana for any other local think our constituents when we're talking um, as far as funding increasing um, such as the proposed cigarette tax um, by one dollar a pack I believe mm-hmm. um, the gasoline tax and, and motor carrier surcharge tax um, it seems to me um, in particularly that you being in the super minority how does the majority view the term tax um, is is that something that automatically portrays a negative, you think, to um, those that, that voted in the majority, I guess. I'm trying to keep this proper. Yeah, well, you know, it seems like they, it seems like the super majority uh, has fell in love with taxes recently. Uh, we got cigarette tax, um, and then we also have the um, tax on gasoline, increased tax on gasoline. So the supermajority is very comfortable uh, with increasing taxes. And, um, you know, and, and it's unfortunate in, in some aspects. And I understand and I, the, the reason for the cigarette tax uh, because of the health, health implications uh, of that and the fact that it funds some of our health programs like the Sick Cell Program, like the Minority Health Coalition, um, the, the tobacco cessation program, um, and so that 
is, is critical. Uh, but when you're looking at the gasoline tax, uh, you know, those are the taxes um, that really affects the low and minority income community more so than anybody else. They're going to have older cars, and those older cars are going to be using more gas. Uh, and so they're going to be spending more of their money on gasoline tax. I don't know if you caught it, but I think Jim just uh, came up with a new strategy to defeat the supermajority. Just start calling yourselves a super minority. <laughs> I don't know if that'll work. Um, but yeah, I, we are a super minority. Well, and I have another strategy. Um, why don't we share some of the governor's rainy day fund, which was accumulated by some of our taxes, if you will, in the first place? And, you know, that is one thing that we have um, called for as they have tried to, as the system majority has tried to provide funding for infrastructure, roads and bridges or what have you. Uh, to tap into part of that money, uh, it has fallen on deaf ears. So, you know, I can say that we will continue to, to, to push forward uh, for that, but uh, it's you know, it's banging our heads against the wall. Um, we're trying to get sometimes the supermajority to, to listen to us, and, and they don't. And all of these taxes, uh, this is Liz Mitchell, all of these ca taxes really concern me. Uh, it seems like it's just going to nickel and dime people to death. They're not taking in consideration um, $10 a gallon, the impact of that on a majority of the people. Uh, and that would include not only the poor people, but people who retired on a fixed income, mm -hmm. uh, people who have health problems that their income is fixed, and you keep raising things, a dime here, a dime there, which doesn't sound like a lot, but if you add that all together, and then you're not getting a raise on anything. Mm -hmm. um, so when, when, they, when you're in these talks with these people, do they ever talk about people like that, the disenfranchised? Does anybody bring that up besides one of our own? Um, we have some that do, um, but, 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 but for the large part, um, it is the Black Caucus that, that brings that up. Some, others do within the Democrat Caucus, I would say, will bring that up. The one thing that we do bring up uh, as a caucus, as a Democrat caucus is, you know, we're talking about increasing everything, but nobody's talking about increasing the minimum wage. Right. Now, mm -hmm. with the cigarette taxes, it's a different thing because cigarette tax is a user. You know, you choose to use cigarettes as an addiction, but that's not a necessity. It's a necessity for you to have gas for your car. It's a necessity for you to have um, light and gas. And so when you, when she mentioned about the nickel and diming, it, it truly is a nickel and diming when you add in the fact that, like, the IURC continues to allow the utilities to increase their gasoline uh, mm -hmm. fees or the electrical fees or the water and the sewer fees continuing to go back to them. So for a, person, a senior citizen on a fixed income, when they say, Oh, it's only going to be, you know, one dollar more a month. But if you have four, or five, or six, one dollar more a month—that's exactly what I'm talking that's on about. Fixed income mm -hmm. is significant, and when they're 
asking for their increases. They're never considering the increases that the others are asking for. Right. So when's the last time they increase the tax on golf courses? <laughs> they probably won't increase the gas. They Well, I don't even know if there's a tax on golf courses. Yeah, that's my point. It's called sales tax. Um, yeah. And I don't understand what that point <laughs> yeah. um, One thing, Representative Pryor, and I noticed that there are uh, several studies, um, study committees that are suggested. What um, w- would be the use for those long-term? Um, and I see that there are some for um, um, use of law enforcement to respond to a mass traffic obstruction, which um, I personally oppose. Um, yeah, that was very problematic, and uh, I'm glad that it went to... You know, sometimes a study committee is graveyard because sometimes these topics get assigned to a study committee, but the study, the, the chairs uh, of the legislative council does not um, assign them to a particular committee to be studied. So um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay, and I think the and last... it went there, it's a deal that I will... Okay, and we have about a minute left. Um, I will say that the, one of the things that troubled me most about that was um, giving law enforcement the right by any means necessary to break up these protests and that sort of thing. Absolutely, and, and I agree with you. And I will tell you, so um, the day, I don't think the, the author of the deal knew that he was going to have such a big outcry. It was such a big deal the chair of the committee didn't hold a vote on the bill and then it's a bill to be a study committee. Okay, and in about 30 seconds, you have a, a final comment or anything you'd like to share with us and our listeners? Um, I would just like to say for people to, to go on the Internet, um, to follow the Indiana Black, Legis- Black Legislative Caucus and to follow me on Twitter and Facebook to find out what's going on. If there is an issue or a concern that you have, reach out to your legislator and let them let them know. Voice your concerns to the people that you elect and take to serve you. And I must say you have brought a ray of sunshine to this otherwise dreary and snowy day. Um, and to our listeners, We'd like to give our thanks to Representative Cherish Pryor, who joined us to discuss the agenda of the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus. She has served as a legislature in the Indiana House of Representatives since November 2008 and is currently chairwoman of the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus. I will share that we are planning to hear from the IBLC in the months to come. To learn more about the IBLC, that is the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus, go to indianahousedemocrats.org slash members slash IBLC. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Support for WFHB comes from Darn Good Soup on the west side of the Courthouse Square. 
Open from 11 a.m. to 7.30 p.m., serving 8 to 10 soups daily, plus salads, cookies, and ice cream. Vegetarian and vegan options abound. Darn good soup. It's fast, it's healthy, it's darn good. Daily menu information online at darngoodsoup.com. just heard Keep On Pushing by the legendary soul group The Impressions. The Impressions are on American music group originally formed in 1958 and their repertoire includes doo-wop, gospel, soul, and rhythm and blues. The group was founded as the Roosters by Chattanooga, Tennessee native Sam Gooden, Richard Brooks, and Arthur Brooks, who moved to Chicago and added Jerry Butler and Curtis Mayfield to their lineup to become Jerry Butler and the Impressions. To keep up with local news and find out what's happening beyond the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB. Or you can always visit the WFHB News website at WFHB.org slash news. And Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community right here on WFHB 91.3 FM on your radio dial and live on the web at WFHB.org. 
www.ncpcc.org. It's time now to give you the latest perspective on the people, news, and issues affecting the black community. For Bring It On, I'm Liz Mitchell. And guess what? I am still Jim Jim Sims. What news do we have today, Liz? Let's see. Let's split this up. Reverend Cummings asked Trump to soften talk about black communities. Let's see if he pays attention. From the Topics online news site, we read that Representative Elijah Cummings, D. Maryland, said Wednesday that he used his meeting at the White House with President Trump on prescription drug prices to also address the president's past rhetoric about black communities. Speaking to reporters outside the West Wing after his meeting, Cummings, who is a senior member of the Congressional Black Caucus, said he told the president that his language about African-American neighborhoods and inner cities has been hurtful. Yes, it has. I said, I don't know if anybody has ever said this to you, but most African-Americans are doing pretty good. And we hear those words about carnage and we're living depressed situations. I told him that it just was very hurtful to people. In speeches and public comments, Trump has frequently portrayed intercity America and many African-American communities in bleak terms. In a pitch for black voters on the campaign trail in August, Trump rhetorically asked African-Americans what they have to lose by voting for Trump. You live in your poverty, your schools are no good, you have no jobs, 58% of your youth is unemployed. This is what Trump said at the time. Representative Cunning said he told President Trump it would be good for him to acknowledge that most African American people are doing very, very well. ABC News Politics, ABC News, March 8th, 2017. Cummings, a longtime resident of Baltimore, said he urged the president to acknowledge that all, not all African-American majority neighborhoods are places of depression where people are being harmed. Okay, and those of you that are found or fans of the television program Underground, which is the critically acclaimed first-year drama about the Underground Railroad and the most-watched original scripted series ever for WGN America Television has been renewed for a second season. The network announced Monday that Underground will return for a 10-episode season, second season in 2017. Production will get underway this summer for the series, which hails from Sony Pictures, Television, and Tribune Studios. Created by Misha Green and Joe Pukaski, Underground averages 3 million total viewers on Wednesday nights this season, according to Nielsen's Live Plus 7 estimates. It grows an average from its same-day numbers by roughly 130% and is the number 6 rated scripted series premiere for any cable drama this season. Last week, it was Wednesday's number one original scripted cable series across all key demographics in live plus three ratings. Um, Liz, this show follows a courageous group of American heroes who attempt during flight to freedom in one of the greatest escapes in history. And I've watched it from Have day one. It? Yes, right. from day one. Right. Haven't missed an episode. All right. Well, That's you my must thing. be one of the Nielsen ratings. Oh, good. People. Maybe well, to be on for a while. Uh, for at least another year. Okay. You know, Muhammad Ali Jr. was questioned at the Washington airport. I heard that. 
USA Today reports that a month after he was held by immigration officials and questioned about his Muslim faith at a Florida airport, Muhammad Ali Jr. was stopped and questioned Friday at Reagan National Airport in Washington, D.C. at the ticket counter and again at the security checkpoint. The incident was first reported in a tweet sent Friday afternoon from the account of Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, D. Florida, on on way home on domestic flight. Muhammad Ali Jr. detained again, religiously profiling son of the greatest will not make us safe. The tweet included a photo of Wasserman Schultz and Ali Jr. on a plane. The TSA said it did not detain Ali Jr., but had only stopped him to verify his identity. In an email to the Courier-Journal, the TSA spokesman wrote, the TSA does not have the authority to detain passengers, and that did not happen. According to the TSA, Ali Jr. arrived at the check-in counter at Reagan National Airport, at which time a call was made to confirm Mr. Ali's identity with TSA officials. After about 11 minutes, he was eventually cleared and sent to the security checkpoint. At that checkpoint, Ali Jr.'s large jewelry set off the scanner, and he was patted down by agents. After a seven-minute screening, he was cleared to catch his flight. So you add that up. 11 plus 7, he was detained. Yes, moving right along. Um, and we could talk about that for a while. Have you, by chance, seen the movie Get Out? Yes. All right. Um, and we all know who Samuel L. Jackson is. Well, Samuel has criticism over the use of black British actors who portray African Americans on film. The satirical horror film Get Out, which is in its second week, held box office success, prompted a controversial response from one of Hollywood's most respected actors, Samuel L. Jackson, The Guardian reports. Jackson used a Tuesday interview on New York's Hot 97 radio station to comment on British actor Daniel Kaluuya's portrayal of an African-American man trapped in liberal white America, leading to a larger conversation regarding specific members of the black diaspora and their entitlement to communicate the historical context of the African-American experience on film. And Jackson says, there are a lot of black British actors in these movies. I tend to wonder what that movie would have been with in a, if you had an American brother who really feels that. Daniel grew up in a country where they'd been interracial dating for a hundred years. What would a brother from America have made of that role? Some things are universal, Samuel says, but not everything. Well, that was a look at African-American headline news from around the world for this week. Tune in again next week for the latest news on and for the African-American community. We want to know what you think of current black issues. Send your comments to Bring It On at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm Liz Mitchell. And I'm Jim Sims. And is this where we go, Samuel, Samuel? <laughs> I guess not. You're listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 FM on your radio and live on the web at WFHB.org. Support for WFHB comes from Bloom Magazine. The editors of Bloom Magazine believe local businesses are endangered by online shopping, and they encourage you to shop locally. More information is available at magbloom.com. 
just heard we are a winner author classic by a legendary group the impressions it is now time to bring you the events of interest in the black community for bring it on i'm jim sims and i'm still liz mitchell all right um and starting off for this week's calendar we do have a lecture and a reception and it is entitled violent intersections women of color in the age of trump um, this will be a panel discussion, and it will be led. Uh, the moderator is our very own uh, co-host here, Dr. Amrita C. Myers, and uh, her guest on the panel will be Dr. Callie N. Gross, Dr. Asma Azsarudin, and Ms. Evelyn Smith. And that will be Tuesday, March 21st, of uh, 2017, at Wittenberger Auditorium. That's on campus in the IMU. The lecture is from 6 to 8 p.m., and the reception and book signing and a justice fair will follow. Um, there will also be a live broadcast at broadcast.iu.edu. Many of us will be participating. Be there or be square, as we used to say back in the day. Oh, that must have been back in your day. Back in my day. Yeah. Okay. In honor of William Bill Garrick, I'm excited about this. An unveiling of a state Indiana historical marker commemorating his historic and achievements at William Bill Garrett. This will take place on Saturday, April 8th at 11 o'clock. Remember that, folks, Saturday, April 8th at 11 o'clock on the grounds of the Indiana University School of Public Health. 1025 East 7th Street. It's the corner of 7th and North Forest Avenue in Bloomington, Indiana. Parking is available at the Indiana Memorial Union parking lot. This is to honor William Bill Garrick. IU's Bloomington Provost, Lauren Roble, cordially invites you to an event to honor the legendary Bill Garrick. Why? Because he was Indiana's Mr. Basketball in 1947 first African-American player on IU's basketball team, 1947 through 1951. He was named All-American in 1951. He coached Crispus Attucks High School basketball team to state championship in 1959, the only Mr. Basketball to win state championships as a player and a coach. So again, Saturday, April the 8th at 11 o'clock on the grounds of the Indiana University School of Public Health, 1025 East 7th Street. Please be there. We will be there. Okay, if you have an event or a happening of the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org.
just heard people get ready our final oldies classic by the legendary group the impressions and as they surmise right at the end you just thank the lord mm-hmm. our thanks this evening to representative cherish Pryor, who joined us to discuss the agenda of the indiana black legislative caucus she has served as his legislature in the indiana house of representatives since november 4th 2008 and is currently chairwoman of the indiana black legislative caucus to learn more about the IBLC, go on the web, go to indianahousedemocrats.org backslash members backslash IBLC. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Joe Crawford. Our news editor is Michael Nolan. Our board engineering team consists of Jim Thrasher and Floyd Hobson. Our original theme music was created by Jamal Ephraim, with additional background tracks by David Becker. For WFHB, I'm Liz Mitchell. Yes, you are, and I am Jim Sims. Be sure to tune in next Monday, March the 20th at 6 p.m., for a very special conversation with Dr. Callie Gross, who will be featured in a lecture and book singing 
entitled Violent Intersections, Women of Color in the Age of Trump. This and much more in our next edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.